I'd like for you to take a little journey with me. Uh, I want to go down memory lane. I guess as I get older, I do this more and more, and you're probably getting tired of it. But it was from this very portion of Scripture, uh, Acts chapter 16, which I will say is perhaps one of, if not the all-time favorite Bible passage of mine. I've said that many, many times that I'm starting to believe that I really feel that way. Uh, I preached my very first full-length sermon in a real church service before an audience of actual live, mostly live and nearly live humans, and that was 44 years and eight months ago. You weren't there, were you? Uh, I do recognize you, yeah. This, this, 44 years and eight months ago, you have a good memory. This is not the same sermon, because I don't repeat my sermons, but it is the same scripture, same story, same plot, same characters, and same outcome. And I really ask for your undivided attention. Sometimes in life, a short, have you noticed that a short span of time seems never ending? It's not really that long, but like, oh, well, I... One of our favorite quotes is, I can't, I can't, you've never said that? Oh, I can't. Okay, let's all say it together. Don't be tough on me this morning. I'm a frail old man and I take it seriously. Who has not said, I just can't and those are the short periods of time. And then we have those long periods of time, which we don't care if they come or not, and it just, boom, fly right by. And we say, we're, like, for instance, in a few days, we've already finished the first quarter of this year. Like, really? I thought it was New Year's last week. Yeah, in no time. So with that in mind, I had a little story to tell you of a small group that was discussing the possibility of sudden death. And it's not a funny uh, subject, but it's real. And the group leader said, well, what would you people do if you knew you only had four weeks of life remaining before you die and, you know, you face the Lord? And one man said, well, for those four weeks, I'd go out into my community and I'd tell everyone of the good news of Jesus. And, and, and that's a pretty good thing to do. And, and the leader said, wow, that's wonderful. And then a lady, a lady, a woman next to him said, for, for those four weeks, I think I'd dedicate all my remaining time to serving my family and my church and, and my fellow man with, with greater conviction and, and with a real dedication. Oh, great, the group leader said. And then, and then a, li a, a little bit rough around the edges truck driver sitting in the back spoke up. He said, what I'd do is I'd travel throughout the United States with my mother-in-law, and it doesn't have to be mother-in-law, it can be Pastor Bob, it can be a boss, it can be a sibling, it can be a parent, it can be a grouchy neighbor or whatever. And I'd travel all over the United States in a Ford Escort and I'd stay in a Motel 6 every night. <laughs> and everyone was kind of puzzled by that. And, 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 and well, why would you do that, the group leader said. Because, the man said, that would be the longest four weeks of my life. <laughs> Acts 16, get a little more serious. We're going to start to read at verse 22. I really enjoin you. I would ask that you, uh, you uh, get with us on the reading here because it sounds so good when we read in one voice. And it's going to be continuous. We're not going to stop in between and comment. So Acts 16, 22, starting there. 
to 34, and I'm reading, and the screen, I think, is reading from the NIV. So let's read together. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household... Mm. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole Nice. Good reading. Sounded great. Quite a story. Quite a story. So a message for you this morning entitled Midnight Revival. The truth is, my friends, as we sit here this morning... We really never know how strong our relationship with God is until we face a severe trial in life. The darkest times, our midnights, and I'm going to call them midnights, and as I refer to that metaphorically in the message, I hope that you'll be able to identify. But those are our darkest times, our own midnights, are the times when our faith is really proven. Paul and Silas discovered God was enough at midnight. Here is the question which is prompted then. What about your faith? Is it real or is it theoretical? You see, you discover your theology at midnight. Until then, it's all theoretical. It's what somebody said, it's what you heard, it's what someone else told you, it's what you saw in a book, it's what you saw in a movie, it's what you listened to over and over, but it's all theoretical. But when your midnight comes, you discover the difference then between theory and reality. Now the story as told here in Acts 16 goes like this. After, and I don't want to give you the backdrop of the first 15 verses, after casting an evil spirit out of a slave girl, Paul and Silas were thrown into prison for disrupting the peace. What they were really disrupting was somebody's uh, income. 
This was a slave girl who had a, an ability to read the future and, and her owners were making money off her. When Paul and Silas spoke the, the evil spirit out of her, uh, they, were losing, they would lose their income. And so they brought them to the, the authorities and said, here's what's happening. These people are disturbing the peace. They were beaten. They were thrown in jail. They were put under close guard. They were placed in the inner cell and they were bound in the stocks. They were pretty well tied down for the evening, wouldn't you say? Hmm. Here's a great parallel. Thought of this. If a student of physiology, a student uh, of studying, say, to be a sports medicine expert, I'm just going to use that field, studies, say, the game of baseball or basketball is big now, one or the other, in the study of kinesiology. And kinesiology, of course, is the study of the movement of the body, of, of uh, uh, actually the mechanics of body movement. That's what kinesiology is. And, it gets, and that person gets a pretty good understanding up here about how baseball or how basketball is played and can probably answer pretty much every question you might have on, on the mechanics of the body movement for playing that sport. But until that person actually gets on a field or on a court and plays the game, it still is only theoretical. So too, you and I can read the Bible... We can read it through from giver to giver. We can gain knowledge. We can form beliefs. We can acquire faith of some kind. But it's never until we're put in a trial that challenges our faith that we find out how genuine it really is, if at all. And at that moment, it's too late to search the scriptures. And you probably won't have time to send an email or to contact your friends on Facebook or Twitter. It's in that lonely moment you discover your own theology at midnight. So here's the question. What will be your response to troubles and trials? First thing we notice here in the story is that Paul and Silas didn't begin to question whether God had messed up. Or whether he... How many times have you questioned God? Now, God, is this really... Is this really and they didn't even question whether they had misheard the commission of, that God had given them. They assumed that since God had led them there, that it was still God's will for them to be there. This is what you call sustained commitment to the mission. And can I just say, in our world today, particularly in American society, particularly in the Christian church or those of us who call ourselves Christian, if there's anything we need that we don't really have enough of at all, sometimes it's hardly even noticeable, is we need sustained commitment to the mission. Major Ian Thomas from another era, founder of the uh, Torchbearers International Group, he told what his fundamental philosophy, uh, philosophy of the Christian life was. Very simple. I love it. You can write it down. You don't need to because I guarantee if you say it over three times in your head, you'll remember it. Ian Thomas said this, go where you're sent, stay where you're put, give what you've got. You want a success formula, Christian? There it is. This eliminates the me-centered attitude of most Americans whose main thought about church is 
Yeah, I like it. It's convenient once in a while. I, I guess I would go, but I don't know. What's in it for me? Instead of, I'm in it, where do you want me to serve, Lord? How do you want me to invest my time, my talent, my treasure, my everything that isn't mine anyway, it's all yours and it's come from you? American churches today are plagued with a lack of commitment. Commitment to the mission. People call it the Great Commission. Around here we call it the Everyday Commission. People change churches over the most trivial complaints. The most popular is, nobody's ever been able to describe or define this one. We've heard it many times. I've heard it for almost 50 years. I'm not being fed. Then go home and get alone with God and start feasting. This is not a spiritual cafeteria. This is not where you get all your feeding. If it is, you're going to be sick before long. Or this church doesn't have the programs I want. That's probably a blessing. That way you can spend more time in the community, more time with your family, more time in sharing Christ with others, and more time feeding so you can grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Christ. Oh, you know what? An elder didn't speak to me. And I think, no, I think a pastor ignored me. What? No. And you kind of you kind of laugh at that. I just wrote those down because they're real. These are things that I have heard, faced, and so on. I'm just going to say for history's sake, some 22 years ago, God called us to Faith Community Fellowship. This is the field God called us to work. And yes, <laughs> there's some other fields. And yes, at times, other fields have looked pretty nice. Some of them better looking fields than this one, maybe. But God has called us to work this field. Go where you're sent. Stay where you're put and give what you've got. Commitment to the mission. Now, if God's the boss, we should listen to what he says, right? Yep, that was popular. If God's the boss, I'm not asking for your support. I'm just saying, are you with me? Is anybody here with me? If God's the boss, we should listen to the orders he gives us, right? Yeah. Let's have that discussion. And P.S., don't be a Jonah. Oh, no, don't be a Jonah. Because Jonah was running from his assignment. And look out, here comes the storm. And look out, here comes the whale. Pastor Bob, do you believe that? I believe if it said Jonah swallowed the whale. I do believe this. God does not bless disobedience. I know it's tough stuff. That's where we start growing on the tough stuff. Pastor was having a conversation with a friend of his, and he said, has your son decided what he wants to be when he grows up? And the friend said, yeah, he's pretty young, but he's already decided. 
He wants to be a garbage man. Well, honorable profession, I guess. He said, but that seems like an unusual ambition for a young fellow to have at such an age, said the pastor. Well, the father said, not really. You see, he thinks that garbage men work only on Tuesdays. <laughs> Commitment, boy, to the mission. Huh? Remember, beloved, when troubles come, if you don't believe in a God who numbers the hairs on your head, Matthew 10, 30, then you may think that something terrible has happened to you and then start getting bitter and angry and cross at God. But if you believe in the sovereignty of God, church, if we believe in the sovereignty of God, there's no if to it, right? Then you know that nothing can happen to you by accident. There are no accidents with God. There are no just, oh, it just kind of sort of happened with God. In that case, your reaction is likely to be quite different. You may even pray and sing hymns, you silly person, at midnight. Your midnight. A middle-aged, getting up a little bit beyond middle-aged, year-old man, Christian man, went in for a routine checkup. You hear about this stuff all the time. And uh, it was going to be just routine, and, and they discovered he had a cancer of some kind in one of his organs, and that it had already spread to other organs in his body, and it wasn't a good diagnosis nor a good prognosis. And what do you say to that if you're that person? How do you, how does that godly person respond? How does the person who has Christ living in him and empowered by the Spirit of God respond? Well, his answer was, it all depends on your theology, I guess. You can discover it in in the good times only at your midnight hour. And the man went on to say, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what the Lord has for me, and I'm at peace with that. Man, when you can say, well, that's total resignation to the will and the plan and the mind of God. This isn't what I wanted, but I guess this is what, well, I know it is. It's what God had planned for me. And I'm going to stick with that. And I'm okay with that. And I'm at peace with that, he said. And my wife and I are confident and we're trusting God. And I think the, I think the Lord has, has, has a lot to teach me through this experience in these days, whatever number they are. My doctors are hopeful, but that's all I can say. But you know what? Beyond the doctors, we have the great physician. And when he comes into play, things change. And we're just putting it all in his hands because the Lord is our shepherd and we shall not want. No. Hmm. Paul and Silas prayed. You see it yourself right there in those verses we just read. And I hope you were one of the people reading. The reason I ask you to read so often is you will remember probably six or eight times more chance of remembering everything you read and, and verbally speak out more than just silently read or just look at or have someone else read to you, even if you are an auditory learner. Paul and Silas prayed and they sang hymns. And I realize we're going to update these kind, this kind of language in a very short time because a lot of people are going to be sitting in our congregation and say, well, what are hymns? No. But I'm just guessing that some of you know, most of you know, maybe the majority of us know what hymns are. They're things you sing. They knew that God had sent them 
to bear witness of their faith. They knew that, but they didn't know much else. They didn't know an earthquake, an earthquake was about to set them free. Verse 26, 7 and 8. They didn't know that pretty soon they would be leading that Philippian jailer and his whole family to the Lord. Verses 29 to 34. As far as they knew, they were where they were and were going to stay where they were for a very long time. In the dungeon, under heavy guard, feet in the stocks. Paul and Silas prayed and sang hymns. Paul and Silas were, as Dr. DeHaan used to say, blooming where they were planted, not trying to change the planter boxes. I love that. So I got thinking of this from a different perspective, and I've preached from this chapter a few times over the last 44 years, but what about, I got thinking about this, and, and I just want to share what I'm thinking. What about praising God? I want to talk about the merits and the value to you and to me of praising God. Matter of fact, I want us to look at that story. How many of you, just even if maybe just a little bit, but you're somewhat familiar with that story in Acts 16? You maybe have heard it before. You remember reading it. Somebody might have preached on it or what? Okay, so you're somewhat familiar with it. So I'm saying when we get to this point, Paul and Silas are praying, praising God, and singing hymns. Here's my question. Does that sound logical to you? I mean, come on, be serious and be honest. Does that really make sense to you? Does that sound like logic to you? I'm struggling with this. What would you feel like you'd be doing? Would you be singing? Huh? I wouldn't be singing because when I sing, my feet move. And if I was in the stocks, my feet couldn't move, so I wouldn't be able to sing. But what would you be singing? I feel good, like I knew I should. Hmm. Uh -huh. Would you? Well, I'm telling you what I'd be singing. Don't laugh at me. You haven't told me what you'd be singing. Oh, I know. You'd be singing, joy unspeakable and full of glory, full of glory. Sure you would. What would you be doing? If you were in that situation, Paul and Silas were no different from anybody than you and I, or you and me. Proper grammar, right? What would you be doing? What would you be singing? Or would you be jumping up and say, get me the legal system and crying out, I want my attorney. My rights have been violated. I'm going to sue, and pretty soon you'll be behind these bars. And I think compared to that dungeon from what I've read of descriptions, of the lowliest homeless shelter, and I, we've been around some homeless shelters that you, probably rescue missions that you wouldn't want to visit, but um, the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago was an experience of a lifetime when we went there. But the lowliest uh, homeless shelter would look like a really nice place to stay compared to where they were. 
They had a major decision to make, folks. It was this. You and I often have this decision to make, often. How to react. Now, if you get around some people, certain people, I call them the whiny complainers. When they're not complaining, they're whining, and when they're not whining, they're complaining. Those are the kind of people that you'd have to jack you up to bury you. They do something to lift your spirit. They really do. Those kind of people. Every church has at least one. We traded ours in a while ago, so we're without one right now. And no, we don't have, a, no, we don't have an ad out there for a replacement. But I can tell you this, if Silas had been like you, and if Silas especially had been like me, he'd have said these words, Paul, why did you have to mess with that slave girl? I knew something would happen. (laughs) Sure he did. You're such a hothead, Paul. Hey, by the way, bud, don't pick me as your partner next time, please. Sometimes I've looked at people's situations for years and years and years. And honestly, I've looked into those situations and thought of the impossibility, what I call the impossibility of praise. I mean, many times it seems contrary to all logic. It seems contrary to the emotions of the moment. It seems contrary to the circumstances to praise God. It just seems contrary to anything within you that might want to respond to God in any way. And you would say, well, I I still love God, but boy, I'm not in any kind of praising God mood right now. I'm imagining a conversation between Paul and Silas. (laughs) Silas probably was quick to get all over Paul, but he didn't know what to do, and he kept deferring to Paul for the answers. He says, Paul, what should we do? Paul says, "Uh, sing praises to the Lord. Silas says, sing! In here? Praises to God? Paul, are you crazy? Have you flipped out? Did they drop you on your head on the way down here? Look, nobody from the church has called. They haven't even texted us. The pastor hasn't shown up. Paul, sometimes I wonder about you. Sometimes to praise God seems as appropriate as lighting a match in a gasoline plant. Or going sailing in a hurricane. Why praise God for impending disaster and doom? It's easy to say, oh, praise God. What do you do in a situation? Oh, I'd praise God. Yeah. Boy, it's easy to say that. What would you do? What would I do? Let's discover for just a moment the power in praise. First off, praise allows the new nature in us to gain control. And I want to stop on that point for a minute because we don't hear much teaching and preaching on that anymore, if we ever did. We don't hear too much preaching on the new nature. We don't hear too much exposition of the scripture as it relates to us growing and maturing and developing in the new nature that we're given when we come to Christ. 
See, Paul said, all things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. I know what I used to be, but I know what, I am, what I'm going to be, and what I am now isn't even what I'm going to be, because I'm looking for a greater day ahead when I shall see him. Praise allows the new nature in us to gain control. And boy, think of your own life. Think of my life. I'm just thinking of my life. How many times, how much, how much in measure, if you could measure it, do I need to gain, let the, the Holy Spirit gain more control and develop that new nature that I've been given? Am I there yet? No. Are you there yet? Don't know. I doubt it. Some people haven't arrived because they haven't started the journey yet. So don't think, well, one of these days I'll arrive and I'll figure it all out. You will never arrive if you haven't started. You'll never grow as a Christian if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. That's first. You've got to make the journey begin. Second thing about praise is, <laughs> and this goes with the new nature, see. Praise bypasses the unregenerate mind. What does that mean? It sidetracks all the wrong assumptions and the wrong ideas and the wrong directions that we might take otherwise. In other words, it puts a stop sign up to the old nature and says, you're not going any further, you're dead. And it sidetracks or, or sidesteps the old nature and allows the new nature to grow. And it bypasses that unregenerate mind so that every response we have now is not from an unsaved mind, but it's looking through a new lens now. Third thing praise does, it is the, or it is the spark plug of faith. It moves you, it moves the believer, true and honest and real and sincere and genuine praise moves the believer from circumstance to victory. So many people are doing pretty well. Do you know what I'm going to say next? Thank you. Under the circumstances. You show me a verse of scripture that says a Christian is to live under the circumstances. I can show you a dozen verses that show just the opposite. Why are you under the circumstances? You should be above the circumstances. He has made us to be more than a conqueror. And we glibly repeat that verse, and then we slide down under the circumstances. How are you doing? Oh, pretty good under the circumstances. What are you doing down there? How are you doing? Oh, I'm hanging on. To what? To whom? 
Look, when you come to Christ and the Holy Spirit and fills you, you don't have to hold on to anything. He's holding on to you. And you are in his hand, and his hand is, is, is in God's hand, and nobody's going to take you out, and you are doubly, triply, quadruply sure that you're saved, and, 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 and you're safe, and everything is secure, and there's no need to be saying, I'm, I'm okay, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging on, Bob, I'm hanging on. I'm, uh, under the circumstances, I think I'm doing okay. Hmm. Here's something else that the Bible tells us is that God inhabits the praises of his people. God is part. He's in the praises of his people. Real praise is God-centered. Real praise is energized by God himself. Real praise lifts up the name of God. Real praise gladdens the heart of God. Real praise identifies you with God as one of his own. And then a couple other things I'm going to toss at you just to give you, get you thinking about praise. Praise, is, and, and by the way, and this is no disservice to anybody, but praise, we, we talk about praise and worship. And I, we've never defined either one, really. But let me just pick on praise. Praise isn't just singing. Praise isn't just being in church. Praise isn't just getting excited. Praise, I mean, it could be those could be byproducts. That could be part of it, right? But, but that, we don't work it up. It doesn't come up from the bottom. It comes down from above. The blessings of God come from above. Every perfect gift which comes from the Father above, the Bible says, doesn't come from the earth below. And so we have to get our, our, uh, th th that whole concept, we have to get that whole focus proper. So prayer gives God, the next point, his proper place. And that's what makes it so hard, so hard to really get praise understood and get it down. But we're getting there. And then praise also gives us our, we can put it up, gives us our proper place. And that's really the posture of praise. A man struggled and struggled and struggled, working most of the time all by himself, trying to build and establish a little cabin on the side of a mountain in a remote part of Alaska. And after nearly two years, he, 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 he's finally at the place where he says, I, I'm finished, I got it done. And I just praise God for helping me. Without his help, I'd never made it. About two weeks later, a terrible storm came to that area, which was not uncommon. But it dumped nine inches of rain on the mountain. Flash flooding, sweeping everything in its path. He sat on the now bare rock where his cabin had stood. And he didn't charge God. He just asked God how he could have allowed this and made him basically destitute. And after some time sitting on that rock and looking down and brooding, he noticed something shiny. And he noticed a vein of gold. And he began pushing back the dirt 
and he discovered a major load, L-O-D-E, of gold ore. It's what we call the mother load. <laughs> I read that story and I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. I was so filled with happy emotion. Look, 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 here it is. Had the storm never come to his life, he would never have discovered the gold that was right beneath his feet. So it is with our trials. So it is with our midnights. So it is with our problems. They're necessary to expose the gold that's in our souls. Let us not charge God. Let us not question God. Let us lift up God's name and forever praise him in the good, in the bad, in the indifferent, in the great, in the lovely, in the ugly, because he is God. And nothing that happens to us is ever going to change that truth. (laughs) Maybe it's all about demonstrating priorities. I don't know. One byproduct of Paul and Silas' praising God. (laughs) This had to be something. If you've ever been around prison ministry, this has got to tear you up. But there's a crowd of prisoners hearing them singing and praising and praying. And they were amazed at the two men. They didn't try to quiet them. These guys have been so mistreated. They've been beaten so badly and thrown in there. How could they be so cheerful? How could they be full of faith? How could they praise a God they couldn't see in jail at midnight? They were impressed with its reality. Some of God's best work is done in prisons. I'm going to repeat that. Some of God, I just heard a testimony last night. It just, it just rocked me. I mean, some of the best ministry, some of the greatest work of God is done in prisons. I've been party to a little bit of it in my career, and I praise God for every moment of it. In the Denton County Jail in Denton, Texas, it's a huge facility. In the chapel of that jail on February the 16th, 1988, I had the privilege and joy of baptizing eight men, inmates, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of those was a Native uh, American tribal leader or chief. And I thought the place would break out when I said that. And in May, I guess my expectations are just too low or too high or something. May the 31st, 1980, or people don't believe what I'm saying. May the 31st, 1988, again, I had the joy in the chapel of the Denton County Jail in Denton County, Texas, of baptizing 17 men and five women in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You have never seen revival until you've seen something like that. 
I mean, anybody can sing, shout to the Lord, da, 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 life is all good, and I got money in the bank, my marriage is strong, my kids are doing well, I'm happy with my job, I love the church, pastor's great, it's all right with the world, and everything's super, and I'm on the downhill slide, and I got the tailwind up my back, and who needs to praise God? The challenge is to praise God when everything in your life is C-R-A-Z-Y. Crazy! If you can sing praise to God with Paul and Silas at midnight in jail, then you've got what is real. Not only will you discover in your crisis times what you believe, but the world around you will discover what you believe. Ah, either Jesus is enough or he isn't. Huh? Either he's more precious than life itself or he isn't. And that's when people see the difference that Jesus makes in the worst moments of life for you, that is when they want what you have. That's when they want it. Hmm. A number of years ago, Norman Cousins wrote an editorial in Saturday Review in which he reported a conversation he had on a trip to India. And this is mind-boggling, and it's very convicting. He was talking with a Hindu priest named Satish Prasad. The man said he wanted to come to our country, the U.S., to work as a missionary among the Christians. Well, he said amongst the Americans, but we find out later what he meant. Cousins assumed that he meant that he wanted to convert Americans to the Hindu religion, but when asked, Mr. Prasad said, Oh, no, no, I would like to convert them to the Christian religion. He said Christianity cannot survive in the abstract. It needs not membership, but believers. The people of your country, sir, may claim they believe in Christianity, but from what I read and see at a distance, Christianity is more a custom than anything else in America. Prasad went on to write, I, or to say, I would ask that either, sir, you accept the teachings of Jesus in your everyday life and in your affairs as a nation, or stop invoking his name as sanction for everything you do. Good advice. Especially in today's world, and especially in America. If there was ever a time for Christians to stand up, it is now. I want to help save Christianity for the Christian, this Hindu priest said. Can I quote him again? Just one last quote. He said, I want to help save Christianity for the Christian. If that's what the Hindus, how they see you and me, how does God see us? Hmm. End of quote. I'm saying even the heathen are wanting to provoke your faith. And boy, do we see that on the streets of America today. 
So we would ask, is God still in the business of shaking places? Has God got another earthquake that might, you know, kind of get our attention? And I'm not saying earthquake in the physical uh, sense. I'm not sure that I would like that. I've been in a little bit of rumbling, but not much. But I wonder, is God still in the business of shaking places? I wonder, is God still in the business of shaking people? I wonder, is God still in the business of letting people know that he's in charge and nothing's going to stop him and we need to be committed to the commission? Now, I believe God wants us to shake this church. I believe that with every fiber of my being. He doesn't want us to play church. He doesn't want us to be SMOs. He doesn't want us to be CNEs. He wants us to be shaken to our foundation and to move out with the gospel message. And he wants to take our lives and fill them with the power of his Holy Spirit. God's desire for us is to be two, twofold. One, to be bold in the way we pray. Bold in the way we pray. Bold in the way we pray and courageous in the way we share the love of Jesus. Hmm. Hmm. He was a very famous British missionary. He served India, China, Africa. As a matter of fact, he died in Africa. Charles T. Studd, C.T. Studd, he wrote many, many things. He's, many students of theology quote him over and over. And he often wrote little, just little vignettes that get your attention. And talking about his burden for the lost and his, and his commitment to the commission of the Lord Jesus and what we need to do. Here's what he said, and I quote, Some people love to dwell near church with choir and steeple bell, but I want to run a rescue station a yard from the gates of hell. Right here I'm going to end the message with prayer. But I'm going to ask for a quiet time, just a hush time for a, a couple of minutes, maybe three, four. And I'm going to ask that you pray. I'm going to ask that you draw the circle around. Nobody else but you, just you. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I'm not only inviting you, I'm asking you to accept him today. I'm asking you to come all the way over that line and say yes to Jesus Christ. So I'm asking that you pray a prayer of salvation, thanking God for the sacrificial gift of Christ as your Savior. If you're saved and you're kind of just bumping along, and you've heard or felt something that's been shared this morning, I want you to pray a new sense of dedication of your life to Jesus. If you're here today and you don't feel like God's really been moving in you and you've really been effective for God, but you're going through the paces, you're going through the motions, and you don't want it that way, I'm going to ask you to pray too. I'm going to ask you to pray for a fresh infilling. We believe in one indwelling of the Holy Spirit and many infillings. And I'm afraid, again, we don't teach enough of that. And people are just sitting kind of in a stupor, not knowing how to take the next step. Will you pray today for a fresh... David prayed for the anointing of fresh oil upon my heart. That's what we need to pray. Oil is always a, signifies the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
and then renewed power if you're serving God with what you have now and you want to even do more or do better or be, you know, be effective. I want you to pray for a renewed power. Because if we all pray our prayer, whatever it is, and we mean, we really mean business, then we can look for a personal and a church-wide midnight revival. That's my earnest, heartfelt prayer for you and for faith community. And I'll close this session in prayer. And as uh, we go on, the worship team will come and join us. But before they do, let's join in a quiet time. And let's go before the Lord in prayer.